Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5 is one of those chapters in the Old Testament that some of us modern-day Christians struggle to appreciate. It's easy to love the 23rd Psalm. It's easy to love the stories of David and Solomon. It's easy to love the prophecies of Isaiah or the dreams of Daniel. But what do we do with these genealogies, these long lists of he begot him and him begot he and so forth? Why are these in the Bible and why should we care in our day and age? Well, the reason they're in the Bible is because God reveals himself in space and time. The Bible is the record of God's redemptive work, and God did his redemptive work through a particular family. And so the progress of that family is carefully recorded. Now, as for why we should care, it might be helpful to read what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says to a mostly Gentile church, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, notice there that Paul says that these stories happened to our fathers, Well, wait a second. Paul was a Jew, and the people reading that letter were mostly Gentiles. So how could he say that these things happened to our fathers? Of course, the answer is that the gospel makes one family in Christ out of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. If you are in Christ, the Bible says, then you are Abraham's children. The Apostle Paul says that in Galatians 3. He says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's children offsprings, heirs, according to promise, Galatians 3.29. So to put it very simply, if you are a Christian, then this is your family history. These are your people now, and this is your story. So we'll begin reading your story, your family history at verse 1 of chapter 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, we learn two very important things in these first four verses. First of all, we learn that despite the fall, the image of God remains in human beings, but less immediately and perhaps less obviously. Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God, and and then here we are told that Seth was in Adam's image and likeness. That sounds concerning. Now, if, if, if that was all that we had, 
we might think that the image of God had been lost somehow, but when we get to Genesis 9-6, we see that it is still there in men and women. In Genesis 9-6, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So there we learn that men and women are still special and deserving of special protection because they are still made in the image of God. But it seems from the wording of Genesis 5-3 that the image of God is obscured now. It's diminished now in some way by its association with Adam's sinful nature. We are not now what we once were, but we are still exalted creatures. That seems to bear to be where things stand at this point in the story. Second important thing that we learn here is, is that outside of Eden, on the other side of the fall, even in the absence of violence, people die. In fact, and he died is the most common phrase in this chapter. Life goes on after the fall, but not without death. For the time being, The human story is a story about both. We'll jump back into the text at verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. All right, let's just be careful to notice here that we're tracing the story of Adam's family exclusively through the line of Seth. The text said that Adam had other sons and daughters, but this is the line of Seth. Seth's line is the line of promise. It is the line that runs from Adam to Noah. And it is therefore the only line that really matters. All of the other lines perish in the flood. Verse 9 says, When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. This is probably as good a time as any to address the issue of the long lifespans that we see in the Bible before the time of the flood. After the flood, lifespans begin to contract, and within a couple of generations, we're seeing lifespans more like what we would think of as normal in our day and age. So, why did people live so long before the flood? Well, the Bible doesn't say exactly why, but there are many interesting theories. Some people assume it is just simply related to the fact that the further back you go towards creation, the less corrupted and diminished human beings are, and that could certainly be it. Others think that it might have something to do with conditions on the earth before the flood. It didn't rain on the earth before the flood. The land was watered by mists and underground streams, and maybe that created a different environment and different conditions that led to longer lifespans. That could be it. 
I even read in one book where it was hypothesized that the longer lifespans related to our relative exposure to cosmic radiation. That could be it. I have no idea why. But I do find it interesting that the Sumerian king list from Mesopotamia also assumes a very long lifespan for the pre-flood era. See, it isn't just the Bible that says this. There seems to be some memory preserved in ancient documents of a different set of life conditions on the earth before the global flood. One thing can be said for sure. It is hard to overestimate the change wrought upon the earth and by extension upon human beings by two very significant ancient events. The fall and the flood. Absolutely everything is different on the other side. Verse 21 goes on to say, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, that's the most amazing verse in the entire chapter. We've been walking through a long line of stories about people who lived, had children, and then died. Here we have a very notable exception to that general rule. Here is someone who lived, had children, walked with God, and didn't die because God took him. What in the world does that mean? Now, it's worth reading some New Testament commentary on this. Whenever you have that, you should read that. Enoch is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Once in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, which just repeats what we're reading here, and then once in Hebrews chapter 11, and then again in Jude chapter 1 verse 14. The passage in Hebrew reads this way, Hebrews 11, 5 to 6 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the apostle to the Hebrews says that since we know that Enoch pleased God, and since we know that you can't please God without faith, therefore we know that Enoch was a man of faith, right? He was, he was trusting in the promises of God. Now, the only promise we've had so far has come from Genesis 3.15. There God said that a child would come born to a woman who would crush the head of our enemy at some cost to himself. That's the only promise we've got. So that must be what Enoch believed. And that tells us something about faith in the Old Testament. It tells us that people are saved in the Old Testament the same way they are saved in the New. They are saved by believing in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, they're believing forward, and we're believing backward, and we've got more information than they do, but we are both believing ultimately in the birth, life, suffering, and triumph of Jesus Christ. Old Testament and New, people are saved in exactly the same way. Now, Jude says some stuff too about Enoch that we want to take a look at. He says that Enoch was a prophet, and that he warned people about the dangers of listening to those who were perverting the truth of God. So Jude says, woe to them, right? Woe to them who are perverting the truth of God. For they walked in the way of Cain 
and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, their loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Close quote. So Jude says that Enoch was a prophet. Now, this comes from some extra-biblical traditions within Judaism, and we as Christians don't accept all of those traditions, but we accept this one because it's been picked up and repeated by an inspired New Testament author. So, apparently, Enoch was a prophet, and he warned that there were people in his day who were lying about God and enticing people into further acts of rebellion. That's a good little reminder for us that to be a righteous person is not just to avoid sin right? Enoch was a righteous person, but he did more than just avoid sin, right? To be a righteous person is more than that. It's also to believe in Christ and to warn other people about sin, error, and coming judgment. That's who Enoch was. And that's what it means to walk with God. And that's what he did. And God took him and he was no more. That's a picture of faith and a promise of life beyond this life. Thanks be to God. We'll jump back into Genesis 5 at verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Now, interestingly, if you add up all the years in these genealogies, you discover that Methuselah died in the year of the flood. Now, I don't think that means that he died in the flood. I, I think it just means that his name and his life were part of how God warned people about the coming flood. The name Methuselah means dart or shooting forth or bursting forth. It may be that Methuselah's prophet dad, Enoch, named him Methuselah as a way of prophesying the flood that was to come at the conclusion of Methuselah's life. In the year that he died... The waters of the earth came bursting forth in an explosion of the judgment of God. Methuselah was a timer and a warning and a further display of the patience and the mercy of God. Verse 28 says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The name Noah means rest or comfort. 
So Lamech, obviously himself some kind of prophet, speaks here as one deeply fatigued by his experiences on the earth. Outside of Eden, on this cursed planet, life is invariably hard. And Lamech has been led by God to look upon this child, Noah, as in some way bringing relief to humankind. And in that sense, Noah becomes a type or anticipation of Jesus. The Old Testament teaches us, conditions us to watch for the child of promise, to watch for the one who, like Noah, will bring us relief from our labors. You can hear that anticipation picked up in the gentle, comforting call of Jesus Christ. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus, just like he is the new and better Adam, is also the new and better Noah. He saves us from the wrath to come. He frees us from the curse of God, and he brings us safely through the waters and out into life and hope and newness on the other side. That's the gospel, Old Testament and New. That's our family story. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 